This morning is Sunday. It is January 31st, 2010. Uh, I have got a word today that uh, most people would think is a very hard word, but I have developed a taste for those. Uh, when I see in worship the kind of response where we fill an altar because people are getting their hearts right before God, they're repenting. What I know is that God is preparing this body as He has many bodies around the United States for a revival, for handling more of His power. We had a birthday party this week where we got together and we thought that we might play poker, or we thought we might do a lot of things. But everybody's heart was drawn towards repentance. And so the men that were there ended up in a circle sharing from their lives, repenting before their brothers, and the power of God showed up in that place. There's nothing wrong with poker, especially the kind we play. But there is no substitute for the power of God. And I won't give up the power of God for ridiculous parlor tricks, for smoke and mirrors. All that is required for the power of God to move in your life is repentance and seeking the kingdom. This is what He empowers. He may not be interested in building the biggest gymnasium. And He may if He told you to do it. He may not be interested in you being as rich as your neighbor. He is interested in empowering you to see lives changed. Our message today is called 4% and ABCs. What a weird title that is. Joy deserves a gold medallion. She's familiar enough with apparently my Facebook page and what is now four or five hundred sermons that are on her iPod that she figured out what this was from this title. 4% and ABCs. You're going to want to take some notes on these. There's going to be an overwhelming amount of statistics as we kind of talk about a problem that exists. And then there's going to be some very simple solutions. What some people call millennials, others call echo boomers. Some affectionately referred to as an MTV generation. It doesn't matter, whatever you call them, teenagers, people between... 13 and 19 are the largest generation. There are more of them alive on the planet today than there has ever been in history at any time before right now. Thinking about the world that our teenagers, anybody born 1991 and later, will one day run is kind of a sobering process. The baby boomers... People loosely defined as those who were born in the 10 years following the end of World War II, in polling statistics, form about 35% of what we would call Bible-believing, born-again Christians. Meaning that they didn't answer that they were Christians just by birthright. They didn't answer that they were Christians because of just a sacrament or because of a christening. They both checked Bible-believing born again, next to the word Christian, about 35% of that generation. These are all of those people that today are between 55 and 65 somewhere. 35% of that generation answers that question, born again, Bible believing. This is not picking on this generation. I assure you where we're going with this is somewhere else. Under their leadership, the baby boomers... We've seen the most rapid moral decline in American history. We've seen legalized abortion, the introduction of Eastern religions on a mass scale, what some call the sexual revolution, 
monumental drug experimentation. Pulling down the Ten Commandments from our buildings, prayer from our schools, and under God threatened right out of the Pledge of Allegiance. That's scary, isn't it? That has happened while 35% of the baby boomer generation was running things. Not picking on the baby boomer generation, although there's enough blame to go around in this message. What you need to know is that the statisticians in the Christian realm, like Barna and people that have been doing this for half of a decade, are estimating that right now people 13 to 19 years old, Judah, come here, 13 to 19, you too, Cody, 13 to 19 years old, look at this fan. That is everybody right now living in America that are between these two gentlemen. He's 12, he's going to turn 20. Everybody between these two gentlemen, 4% are Bible-believing, born-again Christians. Four. That's based, young sit down, that's based on the rates of evangelism, the activity in the church, the birth rates, and mass response to census-like data. 4%. Well, you could take issue with that and say, well, maybe that definition's too narrow. <laughs> Pretty narrow way that we're trying to get into, but in any case, you could say that. What if it was 8%? What if it was 12? Think about the disparity here between 35% and 4%. What kind of world is that going to give us? Aside from the vast percentage deficit, Consider that they are starting off in a far worse climate than their parents ever did. Think about that. Far worse climate. This is the first generation in history that has never been more than a click away, a PDA away, from the most depraved sexual immorality that the world's ever known. It's the first generation, and they have never lived in a time when it was not a click away. They have nothing to compare it to. They don't even know what it would be like to have to go to a bad area of town, to have to be ashamed and look in a clerk's eyes, to experience any level of social pressure to not sin. None. That is a sobering thing, isn't it? This generation, 13 to 19, on average, spends 16 to 17 hours in front of a television each week. What that means is that in a year, the media people show them 14,000 overt sexual references in a year. That's more than 38 references every day to sex that is not wholesome outside of wedlock, outside of a bedroom for the whole world to see. Proverbs tells us, not to pour our fountains into the streets. And 38 times a day, our young people are seeing that. By the time the average child graduates from high school, he or she will have watched 19,000 hours of television. 19,000 hours. And seen over 200,000 sexual acts and a million acts of violence. You know, I live in a city that has banned secondhand smoke. I mean, an all-out war campaign on secondhand smoke. If Cody's smoking a cigar, we're concerned that Cody's lungs are not so much the problem as his freedom to do that is also affecting David. You all understand secondhand smoke? 
because it's not possible for David to go untouched by it if he's sitting anywhere around Cody and he's smoking it. Well, what is it when we live in a complete torrent of sexual and violent imagery? Do you think it's not affecting, even if you didn't see it on TV, it is affecting you because everybody around you is affected by it. I live next door to a junior high school. The things that our junior high kids wear to school is the dress of prostitutes a mere decade ago. I hear the things that they talk about on the way home from school. There are people in this room that would go into cardiac arrest if I played you a tape recording. Do you remember the days when you were scared if your neighbor saw you sinning because he would tell you? I shot out a streetlight as a little kid. And an old man came out of the house and he was surprisingly swift. He ran me down. <laughs> he grabbed me by my ear and he drugged me to my mom and dad. I saw a little boy kicking another little boy the other day. I caught the worst verbal lashing as far as string of expletives directed at me that I've heard in years from a kid that must have been in the seventh grade. Absolutely no fear. More than 25% of teen targeted radio segments feature sexual content. One-fourth of everything that has been marketed to teens has sexual content in it. 42% of all top-selling CDs that 13-year-old and 19-year-old kids buy, 42% mention graphic sexual acts in the lyrics. 42%. This generation spends three hours a day online. Three hours a day, in addition to the TV, in addition to the radio. I'm not making this stuff up. You can Google it. And it is proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that these statistics are conservative. Are you getting scared yet? Yes. We haven't even got to the good things. This access, this saturation, this secondhand sex and violence has produced something. When you look at Judah and you look at Cody and understand this represents the entire nation of teenagers... Nine out of every ten teenagers you know have seen graphic triple X pornography on computers. Nine of every ten. The number that habitually view it is in excess of 80%. Christian magazine comes to my hand, my home where a blind survey was done of evangelical pastors and the numbers were not a great deal different. 50% of every teenager in the on, on the, this country, 50% of all of them, 13 to 19, are no longer virgins. 50% are no longer virgins. We ask for chastity commitments. We give promise rings. We encourage teenagers to be holy. It's not working. The term now is hooking up. Hooking up. Uh, you're playing a video game. You're bored. So you went in the other room and you hooked up. And then you went back and finished playing your video game. 
No romantic involvement. No relationship. We just hooked up. Like a phone call. If 50% of them are not virgins, you say, well, people make mistakes. There's a party, something happened that shouldn't have happened. How do you explain that 48% of all high school seniors, 48% of all high school <laughs> seniors have had sex in the last 90 days? And by sex, they had to define it as intercourse. Because the young people don't think anything but that is sex. This has led to over 8,000 contractions of STDs every single day among people who are 13 to 19. I don't know if I can say this with a straight face, but I, I, I'm going to try. The number one contracted sexual disease among American teens is gonorrhea of the throat. Because even kids that have taken virginity pledges don't view that as sex. One in ten of every 13 to 19-year-old girls that you have known, one in ten statistically has been raped. Come on, is that heavy? Yes. It's quiet in here. While I'm preaching today, during the two-hour time period it takes us to go from worship to the end of this message, 97 teenage girls will be raped. And this in a Christian nation. 97. 97 in this country are raped every two hours. There are a million teenage girls right now from 13 to 19, who are pregnant. A million. Every two hours, 120 kids are born to teenage mothers. And I want you to know, I don't think that that's the horrible part. I really don't. Mary was a teenage mother. The horrible part comes with the next one. 340,000 teenage mothers every single year kill their babies. 340,000. But we're a Christian nation governed by a baby boomer generation that controls, that has 35% Christians in it. What will it be like when it's only four? 35% Bible-believing Christians have allowed this to happen on their watch. What will it be like if there were only 4%? Moving on to drugs, alcohol, violence, that kind of thing. 33% of all high school seniors, 33% of all I'm sorry, teens, not high school seniors. Teens. 33% have been drunk in the last 30 days. One-third of all the people between 13 and 19 in this country have been drunk in the last 30 days. How pervasive is this problem? Every two hours, 3,970 high school seniors drink alcohol. That means while I'm preaching today, statistically speaking, if you... Take the numbers and multiply them out by the hour. While I'm speaking here today, 4,000 American high school seniors are drinking. One in four use illegal drugs. But every two hours in this country, 480 are high on prescription drugs. Every two hours. While I'm preaching today... 480 people are taking prescription drugs between the ages 13 and 19 only to get high. The number one fear that teenagers have on blind surveys related to school is violence. The number one fear 
is violence. One in five of all teens that you've ever met, one in five has seriously contemplated suicide. It's 20%. 1,500 of them every year succeed. Our young people are murdering themselves when they're not murdering each other. During the time that it takes me to finish this message today, 960 will inflict wounds on themselves. They call them cutters. They will hurt themselves as a desperate cry to show the world that they're in pain. 960, while I'm preaching today, will do that. 160 will drop out of school. 178 will report, report abuse. 120 will run away from home. And while I'm speaking today, at least one teenager will be shot to death from a gun wound. While I'm speaking today. If we talk about moral bankruptcy, I would say we've hit it. 91% of American teenagers, 91% say there is no such thing as absolute truth. So when you hold up the Bible and you say, this is absolute truth, 91%, more than 9 of 10, do not believe you. 65% say, there's no way to tell which religions are true. 65% of American teenagers say, there is no way to tell which religions are true. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. No way to tell. 65% believe that. 53% believe Jesus committed sin. Is that shocking to you? Half of all American teenagers believe Jesus sinned. But think about, if you were born from 1991 forward, what movies, what books, what things that have shaped the popular culture, what do they say about Jesus? They say he slept with Mary Magdalene. They say he had sexual fantasies about women that he discipled. That's what's been produced from the 90s forward. What will it be like when only 4% of people 55 to 65 are born-again, Bible-believing Christians. When asked, when given a choice of biblical themes, 75% of all American teenagers believe that the central theme of the Bible is God helps those who help themselves. That means that the slogan-driven, bumper-sticker Christianity is not working. What's made this possible? Has it ever happened before? Isn't that a good question? What has made this possible and has it ever happened before? If you were like me, you go, oh man, those teens. But think about this. Where are their parents? They're sitting in this room. Where are their grandparents? They're sitting in this room. Who's responsible? American church talks about how blessed we are. Our television, our radio centers on how to be more blessed. Are we blessed if our kids are going to literal hell by the droves? Parents and grandparents might be too. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. The state of the church near the first century. Near the end of the first century, I want you to hear some of these things. You can turn to Revelation 2. I'm going to quote loosely from this as we move towards our text today. Has it ever been this way before? Imagine John. John was a young man when he met Jesus. John answered the call. He left all to go follow Jesus. He saw Jesus 
at the height of his ministry, feeding thousands of people. He saw Jesus raising the dead. He saw Jesus casting out demons. He himself participated in those things. He was the only one there at the cross. He was there in the upper room and he was there on the day of Pentecost. John had an amazing life. They tried to kill John. He was boiled in oil. He was exiled to Patmos. John was attacked and the only one that died of old age. And yet, John lived to see the church grow from powerful 3,000 being saved today with the words, what must I do to be saved? Not must, what must I believe? Not how can I be more blessed? How do I release the champion inside of me? What must I do to be saved? Action-oriented. John saw the church born like that and then got a revelation near the end of the first century of Jesus the Christ and wrote it down. And in that revelation, Jesus addressed the churches that John helped to found. Imagine having to say these things after watching the church grow in such power and might, and now it's reached its zenith and seems to be sliding. To the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4. I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm giving you the scripture so you can look it up. You have forsaken your first love. You have fallen from the heights of your walk. Can you imagine having to write that? There are good things that are said too. I'm not denying that. But the God of the universe revealed to John, and John wrote that the church of Ephesus had forsaken its first love. Let me ask you, could that be said of America? Could it be a true statement to say, America, you have forsaken your first love and fallen from your previous heights? I don't think there's been a faster fall in the history of the world. As you move to Revelation 2.10, and we're talking to Smyrna, do not be afraid about what you're going to suffer. He goes on to say, be faithful to the point of death. Why would he have to say that? Because people were afraid. And they might not be willing to suffer to the point of death. It's encouragement to do it. Do you think that in America, we need to hear those words? America, you are afraid to suffer. You need to exhibit trust in God even to the point of death. No, we will make up doctrines for ourselves that insulate us and comfort us from all fear, suffering, persecution. Could that word be written to us? Of course it could. Has it been? Not really. Not really. You don't hear a lot of that. How many times on large national ministries do you hear a powerful preacher telling you, your life cannot be free from persecutions if you are a believer? How many times have you heard the psalm read on national television that says the Lord delights in the death of His saints? How many times have you heard the words of the epistles that say anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer? No. What you hear is you can get rich. What you hear is that you can drive better cars, live in bigger houses, build bigger barns to accumulate more stuff. What for? I told you at the beginning of this year, we were moving towards radical revolution. We were looking at a wholly different kind of Christianity, and the pun is intended. A kind that actually believes the words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Instead of this devilish lie that goes out, that says God wants you to be a billionaire, and if you will send him a hundred, he will send you back a thousand. 
We've fallen so far that you must appeal to men's greed just to get them to do what God's Word says they should already do. Teenagers pick up on hypocrisy, saints. Our teenagers are the way they are because the homes of the teenagers are the way they are. And the churches that the parents take the teenagers to go to are the way they are. I've made it a point, because we're a little church, not to point to big churches. It's a kind of Napoleonic syndrome. It's a kind of small man's disease, if you will. And yet I cannot help but notice when I see TV commercials that mention a church's name and talk about coffee in the sanctuary, talk about entertainment for your kids, and talk about connecting with other people, but never mention Jesus, never mention sin, never mention the gospel, I wonder what are we doing? When I see one of the pastors of the largest church in America, if not the top two largest churches in America, pray at the inauguration of our first openly gay mayor in Houston and say the words, we celebrate your goodness, God, that this great city has been given. And we celebrate the new leadership in our city. And the woman that was elected as a homosexual activist, it makes me concerned. When you go on to say, Lord, we ask for your wisdom, your guidance, your protection, etc. And we thank you for raising her up and your goodness being shown to us. And she has her life partner in the room. I have to ask, when did the church become so powerless? And what will it be like when only 4% actually believe that the Bible is even true. In Revelation 2.14, God said to Pergamum, John wrote it, you have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. He goes on to talk about sexual immorality. Could it be said to America just like Pergamum? America, your preachers teach anything for money and they are rife with sexual immorality? Balaam prophesied for a price. Well, what is it when you tell people what they want to hear to build bigger buildings to attract more people to lie to more people? Is that not Balaam's error? Balaam had a gift from God, but he was willing to use it for a price. Thyatira, Revelation 20, 220 through 24. You tolerate Jezebel, sexual immorality, adultery, learning Satan's deep secrets. They're all mentioned right there. Could it be said to America? America, you tolerate female authority that is driven from wickedness. You love sexual deviance. You spend your time learning deep things that are not of God and are in fact of the devil. Could that be said? Watch Christian TV. Watch Christian TV. And tell me that that word does not apply. I have no problem with females. My wife is my best friend. I love her. She moves in authority and the power of God. To be in authority, you must be under authority. And God has designed it a certain way. And we've kicked against it in every way possible in the name of equality. God made us equal when he chose to birth the Savior of the world through a woman. He made us equal when he pulled a woman out of a man's side. You don't have to strive to be equal. You already are. But to exert authority... 
over men in an ungodly way is something that was spoken of in the book of Isaiah as a curse that would come upon a nation. And yet we love it. Sexual deviance. Spend your time learning deep things that are not of God nor in fact of the devil. What do you think it is when we change the principle of seek first the kingdom and these things will be added to you into financial gain? What do you think that is when you make God an investment banker? What do you think it is when you preach messages like think like a billionaire, become a billionaire? I've never been so disappointed in all my life as to meet with an area pastor the other day who I liked and thought was a genuine man of God. What are you preaching on, brother? How to think like a billionaire and become a billionaire. Meanwhile, our children are killing themselves 1,500 a year. Meanwhile, 50% of all teens are not virgins anymore. Meanwhile, 340,000 babies are being killed just by the teenage mothers. But the most pervasive problem the church has to solve is how to become a billionaire? Are you kidding me? I said, well, it's not us. It's not us. It's, it's everybody else. We're like a remnant here. It's not us. At some point, we have to look at our lives and see what kind of secondhand smoke has entered. At some point, you have to realize that this has all served to desensitize us. So that you are not shocked anymore. You can watch a Super Bowl football game and the commercials that come on, you've learned just to look the other way. I mean, it's just part of it. We've watched our children become sexualized to the point where we have prostituted them to sell goods. The most popular teenage icon's parents put them out there like a pimp puts a whore on the street. And we don't seem to think anything of it. We'll even buy their records. It has affected us. And I feel the voice of the Spirit saying, repent. So Eric, what do you want us to do? Become Amish? I would go be Amish if I thought that's what God wanted to do. I would dress in a burlap sack and ride a donkey if that's what I needed to do to be holy. What he wants you to do is what he tells you to do. Amen. But how do you hear him? How do you hear him if you're being barraged from every side all around you? The word is still true for the church. Come apart and be separate. You cannot swim in sewage and expect to smell like a rose. How about the church at Philadelphia? Revelation 3, 8 through 11. I know you have little strength. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Could that be said to America? I skipped the church at Sardis and I can't skip it. It's Revelation 3, 1 through 2. You are dead and dying. Wake up. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. If there was anything that could be said to the American church, could it not be said you are dead and dying? Wake up! Wake up! And what was the problem? You haven't believed the right things? No. You didn't have the right Christian bumper stickers? No. You didn't have the right Christian t-shirts? No. Wrong again. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. This generation of echo boomers, millennials, whatever you want to call them, the MTV generation will not tolerate a church that says one thing and does another. And so they run from it. They run from it. And whose fault is it? 
everybody who's not 19 and down. Teenagers are great hypocrisy finders. Church at Philadelphia, I know you have little straight strength. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Couldn't it be said? America, you have little strength. Hold on to your crown because it is about to be taken from you. Church at Laodicea. This is the one everybody associates with America. I want to tell you, I associate all seven with America. It's not a prophecy about church ages. It's a prophecy about existent churches with real problems, and those problems haven't changed. They have multiplied. The church at Laodicea was told it was lukewarm. It had acquired wealth, but in reality was wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. How about these words? America, your churches are lukewarm. Not just America. America, your churches are lukewarm. You have acquired the wrong kind of wealth. In my sight, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I want to tell you, next time you hear a prophecy that says, you are wonderful, life is terrific, business is great, whatever kind of fortune cookie prophet that was that told you that, what I hear the voice of the Spirit saying is, repent. Repent. We have been deceived into thinking that we can hold on to sin and hold on to righteousness and that the two will live together. Like the old Paul McCartney song, Ebony and Ivory, living together in perfect harmony. I get it. It was about racial equality. The problem is the church has tried to hold on with darkness and light spiritually, and it will not hurt. It will not work. Listen to these words. You want to turn to these. I don't want to get them wrong. 1 John 3. I began thinking about this. I heard a preacher mention that 1 John was written between 85 and 95 A.D. If 1 John was written near 95 A.D., guess what? He's writing during the time that the correction needed to be given to the seven existent churches in his death. Do you follow me? So if you looked out and you saw seven churches with the problems that America has, what might you write to them? Isn't that a great question? Have you ever noticed when you read 1 John how direct and to the point it is? Have you ever noticed how simplified it is? Do you know when you make absolute statements like that? When the waters have been muddied with ambiguity of doctrine. When everybody has sat around and endlessly debated, does it have fermentation in it or does it not? As if that is the most important problem of our time. When everyone has sat around and argued about whether we really have to witness, whether the word really means this, does God want my tithe off of my gross or my net? When these become the most pervasive problems of our time, in the church's mind, while our children are being sacrificed to Molech in the fire, while they are being prostituted in Corinthian temples, while they are killing themselves in droves, and the church sits around and discusses these things, you get a letter that says something like this. It's the first chapter, I'm sorry, it's the first book... <laughs> It's the first epistle of John, not the gospel. It's the third chapter and seventh verse. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. I just thought I'd pause and let that sink in for a little while. 
You cannot hold your Bible in your right hand and click with your mouse on pornography in your left hand. You cannot allow others in your home to do that and walk with God. It cannot be done. I want you to understand, I don't care how many times you are confessing Jesus is Lord, the Word says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral, the drunkards, the idolaters, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. The church has lied to you. It has told you that grace means you can keep your porn, you can keep your idolatry, you can keep your wickedness, and inherit the kingdom. I am telling you what 1 John says is true. If you sin, you're of the devil. That makes people so uncomfortable. We run right to our Dallas Theological Seminary and say, but wait, I thought we were all just sinners. You were supposed to be changed into saints. Amen. And if you sin, it's no longer supposed to be you, just a power that has been dead and thrown out working in you that you fight against every day, not living in habitually. In spirit-filled churches, the pastors are committing this sin. We only notice it when they run off with their secretaries or little boys. Amen. And if the pastors are doing it, what do you think the sheep are doing? I'm telling you, men and women, if you are in sexual sin in this church... Our goal is to make it so uncomfortable for you that you change or get out. And last year, a bunch got out. But I want to go a step further. If you think you will escape the judgment of God while living in sexual sin, you may very well drop dead in our next service. And I tell you what, if you knew that that kind of consequence was coming, if you knew the next time you used your right hand to sin, God was going to cut it off, you wouldn't do it. But His grace towards you has given you license for immorality. I am here to tell you as His ambassador, sin has a limit. All you have to do is read about Ananias and Sapphira. All you have to do is read about Agrippa who stood up and let men praise him and God struck him dead in front of them. You don't hear this preaching anymore. And the reason is, it makes you examine your lives and that causes people to stop coming to church. They would rather go here. You're a champion. I want to tell you, I embrace that message that you're a champion. I embrace even the church that preaches it. It's just incomplete in and of itself. The way you're a champion is when you die to sin, you live to Him. And to die to sin, you have to have it pointed out. You have to know what it is and you have to hate it. You cannot be told something like, Oh, brother, you can't stop sleeping with everyone on your block? This is not God's best for you. That's like saying, napalm is not God's best for you. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Do we think that the scripture was written for someone else that in the last times will be terrible times? And people will raise up for themselves teachers who would tickle their itching ears. We're so scared to say it. I'm not here to slander any human being. I don't have a tenth of the pressure that most pastors have because I don't work for you. I don't have a tenth of the pressure that most pastors have because I've chosen to meet in my home and then in a storefront rather than to try to draw you with Roman Colosseum-like buildings. I don't have to tell you what you want to hear so that you will support me. I don't care whether you support me or not. I care whether or not you walk in the power of God. And if you do, He will support me through you. And if you don't, 
then we will all fail while 4% stay righteous and the rest go to hell in a handbasket. I get it. This is not the kind of message you like to bring your friends to. But you have to wonder then, would you have actually followed Jesus? Because he said things like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't enter the kingdom. Lord, Lord, that's a hard saying. Who can accept it? You want to leave too? Get out. That's what he told them. To men who had already left everything. We try to follow him without leaving anything. We even want to bring our porn along. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. If Bob showed up here to tear this building down, if he showed up here with a sledgehammer in hand to tear this building down, and you said you were on Bob's team, but every time you turned around, what we saw was you were putting up more plaster, how could you claim to be on Bob's team? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You cannot be involved in the devil's work and be on the Son of God's team. It's really that simple. And why did John put it that way? Because he saw a flood of dissipation. He said, look, let's quit arguing about who believes what. Let's quit arguing about the latest program. Let's quit arguing about the latest CEO vision for the pastor. Let's quit arguing about money and blessings and all those things. Let me make this simple for you. He who does what is right is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Got me? Got him exiled. He got him exiled. But John knew what it was to be called the son of thunder, to be violent with his hands and be touched by the master and become the apostle of love. And he couldn't tolerate the corruption of the church. So he spoke against it. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning. Cannot go on sinning. Are you thinking about somebody else right now? Dig a little deeper and go closer to home. Stare in the mirror of God's Word. Look it in the eye. Stare at Him on the cross. Not a neat, pretty gold cross hanging around someone's chest. Stare at Him on the cross where His blood is dripping from it and His flesh is falling from the bones. Look Him in the eye and ask Him, is there anything in my life that's unpleasing to you? Throw out the theologians that say, well, we're all going to have a little. Look in His eyes. Be wrecked by His presence. Say, Lord... What in my life would you have me do? That's the starting place for Christianity. Not an event in the past, an event that happens now and tomorrow. And as many times as it takes, this is why you carry your cross daily. Well, I was saved in 1990. Good for you. I had a lollipop in 1993. <laughs> Hadn't had one since. Saints. For the devil to do what he's done in our nation, he has first had to pull the teeth of the church. In his book, Revolution, Dr. Brown quotes Randy Alcorn. 
as having said the following about the radical shift in social mores that took place in the 60s and 70s. Now I'm paraphrasing this because I left the book at home today. The church had little effect on the radical shift in social mores because sadly the church largely participated in them. The darkness that came dimmed the church's light rather than the light exposing the darkness. It is true. When there is not a thing that is different between you and your neighbor, when you drive the same cars, when your household budget works the same way, when every area of your action cannot be discerned as any different than theirs, they have had a bigger influence on you than you have had on them. First Peter 4. We're going to read the first few verses. Are you all mad at me? I found out that the right kind of Christian says, yes, hit me again. It's an oil. It's a kindness. It's loving mercy because I don't want to stray from your ways. I found out that the right kind of Christian endures discipline as love and sees open rebuke as better than hidden love. I found out that the right kind of Christian says, better meat... I'm sorry, better vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. The right kind of Christian is willing to give their lives, not sit around and be tickled by feather pillow doctrines. First Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. <laughs> arm yourselves with the same attitude. What could that mean? Well, if all the people around you are wanting to beat you up all of the time, how much do you want to fit in with them? How much do you want to be like them? How much do you want to listen to the music they listen to? You know what ought to be coming out of your mouths? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But one of the reasons it's not is because you're doing exactly what they are doing. And nobody can tell the difference between you. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he... <laughs> As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. What a great question. How are you going to live the rest of your life? To be more comfortable? To have a more padded seat? To have a bigger 401k? How will you live the rest of your life? Will it be for normal human desires? Well, Eric, it doesn't say normal. It says evil. Your normal desires are evil. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Not the American church. We never get enough. We want both. We want what the pagans do and we want what Jesus does. But we believe the right things. What good is your belief if it doesn't translate to your actions? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse, abuse upon you. Let me ask you, how are you going to live the rest of your life? What are you going to live it for? Do people think that you're strange or do they think you're essentially the same as they are? The normal state of the Christian is that the world is heaping abuse upon him. What's your normal state? And you need to ask yourself why. One of the young men that is 
really finding passion and fire in his life for Jesus right now. Is noticing that his whole family suddenly being persecuted. I said, welcome to the team, buddy. And I really am proud, really am happy. This is the normal state of Christianity. The better question is, if you're not experiencing that, why? Could it be that they don't know you're opposing the kingdom that they serve? You only have one or two choices. You can be filled with the Spirit of God or you can be filled with the Spirit of disobedience. Ephesians 2 teaches that, not Eric. That means if you are not filled with the Spirit of God, being led by Him, you are filled with the Spirit of disobedience, bringing wrath upon the world. One of two teams. And if all those that are on the wrong team like you, you must not be dangerous to them at all. One of the things that separates Christians, followers of Jesus, from the other religions of the world, is that we're neither actionless philosophy, nor are we just a system of religious works to obtain eternal life. The kind of faith that we are is written about in this book. This is Spiros Zadhades, Was Christ God? I'm reading from page 47. A native of interior China wanted to become a Christian but couldn't understand how Christianity was superior to Confucianism or Buddhism. One morning he came to the missionary in a happy mood, saying, I had a dream last night, and now I understand. I dreamed I had fallen into a deep pit where I lay helpless and despairing. Confucius came and said, Let me give you some advice, my friend. If you get out of this trouble, never get into it again. <laughs> Thanks. Buddha came and said, if you can climb up to where I can reach you, then I can help you. Again, thanks. Then Christ came, and He climbed down into the pit and carried me out. He came down into the pit and carried me out. I am so glad that Jesus gave that man the dream. He laid His finger essentially on what is different about Christianity. Should your neighbors have to see that in a dream, or should it be displayed in your life? Why do we have a 4% problem? Because they don't see it displayed in our life. Church, we need to repent for the exaltation of our creed, our belief systems, and our programs to the point that we have forgotten the deeds of Jesus. We are not in the business of rescuing people that are hurt. We are not in the business of feeding those who are hungry. And this was the business of Jesus. I would applaud the pastor that prayed for that mayor uh, under the inauguration, if I had any confidence that he was also pointing out her sin and telling her she needed to repent or God would be displeased with her. I would have nothing but praise if he ate dinner with her, if he spent time with her, letting his life rub off on hers so that she could be changed by the power of God. I applaud the mingling of people that are in sinful lifestyles with saints so that they can get saved. Amen. I do not applaud a distinction that has no differences. I do not applaud sitting next to lost people without them ever knowing or having a chance to see there is a singular thing different about you than them. The kind of lives we're supposed to live provoke the question. Peter tells us, that when we live godly lives, they will ask us. I saw you give away your car. Why on earth did you do that? 
You're catching the bus now. Well, because I care more about their needs than I do mine. Do you think that would provoke questions? I wanted to teach on Matthew 25. I don't have time to teach on Matthew 25, so I want to tell you a little bit about Matthew 25. If I preach another nine minutes, that'll make something like a whole hour. I get to go preach at a church here soon, and I'm told their entire service, from beginning to end, is not much more than an hour. How am I going to do that? (laughs) The parable of the talents has a man who entrusts property to people, each according to his ability. He puts his money to work. The Bible tells us that our work is to believe upon the Son. And I'm telling you that if you believe upon Him, you will be busy doing His work. Some of the men dug holes and hid the money. The talents, what they were supposed to be putting to work. The church in large part has dug a hole and hidden spiritually from all of the problems around us. It's just not my ministry, you know. So what if they're all dying and going to hell? I mean, I just don't feel led. I heard a pastor recently say, drop a bullet in your pocket, then you'll feel led. (laughs) How can you not feel led? If there's a fire out here, and during the last two hours... 97 girls were being raped. How led would you feel? It's going on all around us. It is going on all around us. What more do you need to get off of your salvation? To get busy? I'm proud of our little church. I'm proud that I can preach a message like this and most of you will still come back. I'm proud that you will work to put this into effect in your life. It's time that we learn the lessons that James teaches us. Our faith is shown by our deeds. Our faith is shown by our deeds. In Matthew 25, 31 through 36, Jesus calls certain people (coughs) sheep and welcomes them into the kingdom. They were called sheep. I want you to hear this because they fed the hungry. They gave drink to the thirsty. They invited strangers in. They clothed those needing clothes. They visited the sick and the imprisoned. Let me interject something here so that we don't miss this point of a very familiar passage. He didn't say that the sheep read their Bibles, that they went to church, that they gave money, that they listened to the latest teaching and went to Christian concerts or wore all the right Christian witness wear. Instead, what he said was, They fed the hungry. They gave drink to the thirsty. They invited strangers in. They clothed those who needed clothes. And they visited the sick and imprisoned them. Why are we declining in census as far as among our teens? Because they haven't seen any of this. They've watched mom and dad go to church and leave the exact same way that they came. They've watched people embrace Jesus and live in sin at the same time from the preacher right on down to the nursery school workers. And they're fed up with the hypocrisy. To get vomited out of God's mouth, you had to be in His mouth. The 4% problem is because of a powerless, actionless, sin-saturated church. 
Action-based Christianity is the cure. The first thing you teach a child when you want him to read is his ABCs. And the first thing that needs to be taught to the church is its ABCs. Shut up and do it. That needs to be said to the church. Quit telling everyone about your latest doctrine and do something that shows them the love of God and then tell them. There is this Operation Battle Cry that is going on for the youth, and I'm not speaking against it, but I honestly don't think more conferences are going to help. I don't think a different approach to uh, youth ministry is going to help. I really don't. And I applaud them, I support them, and I want to send them money because I think that they're on the right track, but I don't think that's going to help in our lives. I don't think what we need to do is have a new program. I think what we need to do is have an entirely new lifestyle. One that is focused on other people and not on yourself. Has that not been our theme for the beginning of this year forward? I can't get away from it. I'm scaring my own family, and I know it. But I want to go as far as the faith that God has given me will carry me, and I'm inviting you to go with me. James 4.17 says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and does not do it sins. Did you hear that? Anybody that knows the good they ought to do and does not do it sins. Wouldn't you normally think of sin as doing something you shouldn't? I sinned because I looked at something I shouldn't. I sinned because I did something that I shouldn't. When James defines sin, he defines it as knowing what you should do and not doing it. As much as my emphasis is on holiness in the church, we might need to redefine holiness. Holiness is not, you are not holy because you didn't look at porn this week. You are not holy because uh, you didn't invest in something wicked this week. Holiness is when you do what God tells you to do. That's the difference between a sheep and a goat. The sheep do what God tells them to do and the goats don't. David was considered to have a heart after God. Were there some bad things in his life? Monumentally bad. But you know what else was in his life? He did what God told him to do. Do you think David will outrank or be outranked by a man who believed all of the right things, had no outward sin in his life, but never did anything for Jesus? You are kidding yourself. You are kidding yourself. But that seems to be what America esteems. As men who tell us what we already know and have agreed on about God in a new and exciting way. I would like to see the next message preached actually lived. 2 Timothy 3. We're going to finish here real quick. 
The third world is closer to the first heaven. And the reason that it is, is they hunger for God because they hunger for food. And they're trusting Him to meet their needs. And you know what? They're thankful for the things that we throw away. Do you think we're going to receive a pat on the back on that day? Unholy. Without love. Full of antidepressants and without love. Unforgiving. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal. Not lovers of the good. Treacherous. Rash. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That couldn't be America, could it? Just to get people to be obedient, we need to make missions trips like vacations. Just to get people to give, we need to promise them a better return. Just to get people to come to church, we have to build a McDonald's playland in our foyer. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The group of people I got born again with all got thrown out of their houses. And the first church service we were to have in a building, when we showed up, the doors were locked. It was in the 30s and raining, and we met anyway in the parking lot. Do you need steeples? Do you need stained glass? Do you need even this that we have here? Or do you love God enough that you would meet if you had to stand on razor blades? Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them. Well, what happens when you are the them? What happens when the problem's not with little Johnny and Susie, it's with their friends, and your kids are the friends? Have you ever noticed how we escape all accountability? Always, It's always someone else, somewhere else. It's always the church bigger than you or the church just down the road. Well, where does it start if not with us? I don't have time to teach on all the things that I want to. I want to tell you, Peter says, prepare your mind for action. He didn't say prepare your mind to believe. He says, prepare your mind for action. I would love to tell you that holiness is doing what God says, not not sinning. I'd love to tell you a lot of things. I'd like to teach you the rest of the lesson out of James about pure and faultless religion is to take care of widows and orphans. I'd like to tell you that faith is shown by what someone does and not what they say. I'd like to teach you to discern sheep from goats. I guess I'm going to have to count on you to come back next week. I intend to show you my faith by what you see me doing. I've learned my lesson from listening to the Ephesian church. I'm going to return to my first love and repent so that I can walk on the heights with my God. I've learned from listening to Smyrna. I've made up my mind that I'm ready not only to suffer, but to die for Jesus. And that's not a bumper sticker slogan for me. I've learned from listening to Pergamum. I will not tolerate men who preach for money and are rife with immorality. I'm not going to pretend and be nice to them. I'm not going to worry about offending. I've learned from listening to Thyatira I'm going to refuse to acknowledge misplaced authorities that are driven from wickedness and focus on deviance. I'm not going to endure the things that they call deep but are nowhere in God's economy. I've learned from listening to Sardis. It's time to wake up. It's time to revive what is dead and dying. My faith needs to be made complete by my actions. I've learned from listening to the church at Philadelphia 
I'm going to strengthen what remains. I'm going to hold on to my faith. I'm going to realize that my crown is not a birthright. It can be lost. I'm going to listen to Laodicea. I'm going to rid myself of a do-nothing Christian attitude. I'm going to quit talking about only being blessed. I'm going to quit living a life that makes Jesus himself want to puke. I'm going to find real power, real riches, and I'm going to do it through action-based Christian-like behavior. And I'm also going to see the 4% trend change. Because when the church of God stands up and acts like the church, the people will respond. We can blame homosexuals. We can blame socialists. We can blame anybody that you want to blame. But the blame lies squarely on the shoulders of the church. Period. Y'all stand up. My goal is not for you to walk in 6-5 and walk out 5-6. I'm not trying to beat you into the earth. We can be so emotionless. We can be so hard to move off of center. Or center. That it takes a sledgehammer to create movement. So with all my heart, I have tried to hit you with the biggest sledgehammer I have available. But you need to know that before I hit you with it, God hit me with it. And I am not standing here trying to preach a fine message while living a poor life. I'm inviting you to do exactly what God is inviting me to do. He has shown me the pathway to real life. Blessings that are real blessings. And I'm trying to get you to follow me as I follow him. There's probably a lot I am not getting right. But you can count on this one thing. I would rather die this moment than miss it. I would rather be struck right between the eyes than miss it. So if you have correction for me, I'll receive it. I hope the same is true in the other direction. Because God knows if we're left to our own devices, we're not doing very well. As we begin to sing, ask the Lord how you need to respond. I've never had altar calls for the sake of having altar calls. Never. We've gone a couple years at a time without having altar calls in this church. But when I see the kind of response that we saw in worship before you heard what God required of you, I wonder if He's not trying to create in you kind of new man that won't compromise, that won't back down, that won't sit quietly in the back of the room, the kind that demons run from rather than run from demons. I wonder if he's trying to raise up from this group men who can call fire from the skies and call dead bodies out of the grave. It has to start somewhere. Why not with you? Matthew, lead us. It's your blood It cleanses my heart It's your blood It makes me whole It's your blood It changed my life Jesus, you Paid the price for me It's your blood
pray together. Why don't y'all join hands with the people around you? John, spread right across that aisle. Mighty God, Lord, we love you. Our heart's desire is to see your hand at work in our lives. Holy One, we're asking for blessing, not for ourselves and for bigger barns, but to spread it out among the nations. Lord, we're asking that your power would show up in this place. Mighty God, that you would set minds right, that you would set spirits right. Holy One, that you would be the chain-breaking God that we read about in your book. Mighty One, right here in the midst of us, have your way. Mighty, mighty God, empower us that we might see freedom. Holy, Holy One, we love you. We thank you. And we worship you. Come on, say, I worship you, Jesus. I worship Jesus. Hallelujah. Now let's worship as we leave. I could sing a damn song. Shout it out.